Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Dr. Ellen Vora. She's a holistic psychiatrist and an author. She has a book called The Anatomy of Anxiety. So we're going to talk about anxiety. Ellen, thanks for coming. Rich, thanks for having me here. Well, tell me, first of all, what's your background? Do you suffer from anxiety yourself? Like, how did you get into this area? I got into this area because I'm a psychiatrist in practice, and it felt like nearly every patient I was treating was struggling with anxiety to some extent. Right. And what about the past two years? I'm sure it's uh, ramped up either a little or a tremendous amount. What do you see? Been a little bit of an uptick in the last two years, indeed. Yeah, it was really already such a problem. And I feel like I could have made claim to an epidemic of anxiety even before the pandemic, but it has just reached fever pitch since then. So, what are the different uh, types of anxiety that people exhibit? So, the way I was trained in psychiatry residency is to break anxiety down into these different categories like generalized anxiety disorder and panic disorder with or without agoraphobia, social anxiety, PTSD, OCD, all of this. And that's not actually what I find to be most useful in my practice. The idea behind these classifications is always to steer management. Like when is medication indicated? When are different therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy indicated? The way I see it, I break anxiety into two categories, false anxiety and true anxiety. And false anxiety is really what I consider to be avoidable anxiety. It's unnecessary anxiety. It's caused by seemingly benign aspects of modern life that tip our physiology a little bit out of balance and create a stress response in the body that then feels exactly like anxiety. And true anxiety is really something that's not avoidable and not something that we could medicate away if we wanted to. It's not something that we should pathologize. I think that true anxiety is really something coming from deep within us, kind of a call to action or a true north that tells us, hey, slow down. There's something not right in the world around you. Please pay attention. 
So I guess everyone probably has like a lifestyle induced anxiety, but then for some people, there's a deeper core anxiety as well. It sounds like. Exactly. So when you work with someone, do you first focus on the, not, I don't want to call it self-caused, but you know, lifestyle induced anxiety, strip that away first and then see if there's any core left. Is that like, what's your methodology? That's the strategy. I think of the false anxiety as the low hanging fruit, like unlike the way we think about mental health as, um, you know, our thoughts, our behaviors, our genetic chemical imbalance, something that might require medication and seven years of therapy. False anxiety is something that we can usually remedy in a matter of weeks or months and just get the physical body into a state of balance. And then we see what remains after that. Some people really are no longer identifying as anxious after they've gotten their physiology back into balance. What are some of the things people can do to take the edge off their uh, environmental or lifestyle induced anxiety? Yeah, there are a lot of different strategies that we can take. For many patients, I start with blood sugar. I think a lot of anxiety is actually just the feeling of the stress response caused by a blood sugar crash. And many of us in modern life are swinging wildly up and down with our blood sugar because our modern American diet is so blood sugar destabilizing. For some people, it's healing the gut or decreasing inflammation throughout their body. Sometimes it's about repleting missing nutrients. There are sometimes micronutrients like B12 that many of us are deficient in. Magnesium is another one. And improving sleep quality is one of my favorite things to do to treat anxiety. That can really just be a matter of getting very strategic about light exposure to make sure our circadian rhythm is functioning properly so we get tired at the appropriate time at night and fall asleep and sleep deeply. Exercise, breath work, even sometimes some functional manual therapy to make sure that we're breathing properly through the nose. There's so many different ways to approach the physical body and the ways it gets tripped up into a stress response. Well, when people come to you, what solution do they want? Like, what do they tell you is going on with them? You know, there are certain archetypes or stories you hear over and over. And then what do they tell you what they want versus what you suggest to them to do? Oh, that's a great question. I think it depends on the phase of my career. Earlier on, when I was working in more of a conventional setting, People sort of wanted the more disease model understanding of their anxiety. Like this is genetic. It's friends in my family. It's something I have no power over. And so give me the meds basically. And, and there's sort of a, a coddling approach that I think we're culturally conditioned to really want right now, which is to tell people there's nothing you can do to control this. It's not your fault. And so basically, you know, to release any blame and shame that people carry around with mental health, to release any stigma. Um, they want to be told this is a genetic disease. And I have nothing against, like, I'm not here to support blame, shame, stigma. Like, that's not what I'm here for. But I do think in a way that shouldn't be seen as shaming or overwhelming, but instead seen as empowering and hopeful, I want people to realize that they actually do have some ability to influence their mental health, that they're aspects of our diet and lifestyle that determine how our mental health manifests. There's often a genetic predisposition, but it's a predisposition. It's not a destiny. And in functional medicine, we say genetics loads the gun, environment pulls the trigger. So I like to teach people about environment. At this point in my practice, since I'm known as a holistic psychiatrist, no one's coming in to see me for the conventional approach. They're jumping through many hoops and waiting for years on a wait list to finally come in and say, like, how can I approach my anxiety holistically? Is that what they say is holistically or how can I get rid of my anxiety or how do they express it to you? 
Yeah. So I think a lot of people come to see me because they're actually already on psychiatric medication and they want to get off and they have not found a psychiatrist who was knowledgeable about that or supportive of that process. So sometimes they're, they're trying to say to me, I don't think the meds have been the answer. They haven't been sufficiently helpful, but I'm stuck because when they try to go off, they get very symptomatic. And so that's a big problem. People are tipped into withdrawal when they try to taper off their psych meds. And so a big part of what people are asking from me is to support that process and to do that skillfully and with a lot of different strategies to make sure it goes smoothly and we can sustainably get somebody off of meds. But some people are basically, they want to go deeper. They want to know both the false anxiety strategies, especially like very customized to their own physiology. And some people want guidance on how to dive into the true anxiety, how to do that more psycho-spiritual inquiry to understand where we're blocked, where we're out of alignment, where we have some deeper seeking to do. Yeah. What does that look like? What's the protocol you have for people that, you know, how do you figure out what's going on with them and how to help them? Oh, and it sounds is- like they have to do it themselves, you know, for the initial part. So like, what do you tend to suggest to people? Yeah, I, that is somewhat protocol-less. <laughs> that is the a walk through the jungle with somebody. And I'm trained as a psychiatrist, as a therapist. So I'm, you know, have at this point, a lot of practice observing somebody and understanding based on their micro expressions and the saccades of their eyes and where they have resistance, where they're not comfortable talking about something. Usually that helps guide me. And I really think of myself as like, I'm just at their side, walking through the jungle with them, shining the flashlight on the path ahead. So I'm looking for those kinds of signs to know that that's where we need to be walking. And I have found that when safe and indicated and appropriate psychedelic medicine is sometimes a good support to help people really connect to some kind of deep, sometimes guarded inner truth. Um, And it also helps people reclaim a sort of engagement in their lives, a feel of awe, and it can make somebody feel a lot more inspired and hopeful. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. It just sounds somewhat generic. Like what are some examples of, you know, without naming names of issues people have had that you've helped them work through? Like what was the, the linchpin that took away their anxiety or helped them feel better? Clarify what you mean. Yeah, like a case study. Someone came to you with a certain kind of anxiety and you helped them, let's say, improve their sleep or whatever it was, and they reduced it. And then they said, thank you. I'm all good now. You know, any good success stories you have that were interesting? Yeah. So I'll, I'll think of one patient that comes to mind. Um, she originally came to see me so many years ago and there were many layers of false anxiety that were the first things that we needed to address. She was inflamed, her, or her hormones were out of balance. She had acne, she had migraines, she had polycystic ovary syndrome. She was on a number of different medications, an antidepressant, an anti-anxiety drug, a benzodiazepine, something for a stimulant for her ADHD, a sleep aid. She's taking Ambien, I believe, and birth control pill. And so 
we worked on getting her body back into balance. It turns out many times she was having a panic attack as a result of a blood sugar crash. So we stabilized her blood sugar by transforming her diet to more of a blood sugar stabilizing diet. And then we also noticed a pattern with her hormones and she would get very depressed with hormonal swings. So in the end, we ended up taking her off birth control and using different kinds of gut healing strategies and inflammation sort of targeting inflammation to take her out of this very symptomatic polycystic ovary syndrome that she was struggling with. And then in the end, improving her sleep quality and getting her off the sleep aid helped her with her focus so that she no longer needed her stimulant. But her anxiety was sort of still the peskiest problem for a really long time. And she was still taking a benzodiazepine. And I started to realize that she was in something called interdose withdrawal. So basically she would be relying on clonopin and every time her body's we sort of would get to the nadir or the point where pharmacologically she had metabolized most of the clonopin and she was coming down from it, it would make her feel pretty panicked. And so she kept needing more just to get the same effect. And we could have just stayed on that treadmill and just kept increasing her clonopin for year after year, but I didn't feel good about that. And what we did instead was we very gradually tapered her off of the clonopin. And that was a rough process, but she did eventually get off of the clonopin and she is at this point off of all medications. She, her hormones are working like clockwork. Her digestion is working like clockwork. She exercises, she sleeps well. She's really seen so many leaps and bounds of improvement with her social life and her career. And she's just doing well. And there's been some true anxiety along the way. She really needed to get out of a bad job. She actually needed to change geography and live in a place that was more of the right fit for her. And She's really thriving at this point in her life. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. All right. Well, that's good. I don't know. So what about these deep-seated anxieties that uh, really changing your environment or habits or diet can't reach? Is there a lot of it? Is there a little bit of it? And you know, what's the cause for those? It depends. We're all different. I think for some people, there's like a giant inconvenient truth that they kind of know on a deep, deep guarded level, but they haven't really admitted to themselves. Maybe that's, we need to change a relationship we're in, or we need to change career path. And we know that if we open up to that, it would kind of blow up our lives. So we resist it. But I think that creates anxiety to be living in that bit of denial. So once we tiptoe towards it and start to really open up and explore that, that actually is never as scary as it seems in our imagination. And then we can take steps accordingly. And that really transmutes our anxiety from kind of like dread and tension into a feeling of purpose. And some people it's much more global. Like they might feel in alignment with how they're living their day-to-day lives, but they feel really called to be an activist about something, whether it's climate change or mental health stigma or any number of other causes And so they know that unless they're taking action to help remedy a situation that they feel is woefully wrong in the world, there's a tension until they start to take steps to remedy it. What do you mean? How are they supposed to change the world? How are they supposed to do that? First of all, what do they just have to give in and say, okay, I can change the world or do what they can? Or what do you mean? I think this is a, a bigger question, but basically... What can any of us do is just one foot in front of the other and make whatever impact we are in the position to make. So it doesn't have to be grand, doesn't have to solve the whole problem in one fell swoop. We can't expect ourselves to boil the whole ocean, but we can't also just ignore the problem and say, hey, if I can't fix it all myself, there's no point in doing anything. We have to take at least some small step. Okay. I mean, do you have any, not advice, but any recommendations for people on how they can 
work with their anxiety in a better way than they are currently. Yeah. I think that you want to first just open your eyes and become aware of all the ways that you might be getting physiologically tripped into a stress response and that this is not your identity. This is not your true anxiety. This is something really unnecessary and avoidable. So keep an eye on your blood sugar, on your sleep quality, on how your digestion is feeling and notice when you're feeling anxious, does it track with any of these benign aspects of your physiology? And then beneath that, listen for what your true deeper anxiety is telling you. Don't see the anxiety as a nuisance, see it as a communication and try not to pathologize it, feel no shame about it. Basically let it be a call to action that you slow down, you pay attention, you listen to what that little quiet voice from within is trying to whisper. Okay. I mean, if someone's anxious, I don't know how they could listen to anything. They're anxious. And then how do they calm down or take the edge off so that they can reflect? Like what are the, the levels of anxiety you've seen where people are just, they can't do anything versus they're able to think and help themselves? Yeah. I'm not sure I would use the word that you used, calm down. I think I'm telling people to slow down. So it's more like you get still and you sit and you listen. And sometimes that can be very uncomfortable. It doesn't have to look calm or feel calm. It often doesn't, but it's kind of honoring ourselves. It's not just trying to distract or avoid or numb out from our feelings. That's a very common cultural practice is let's eat to avoid, let's get drunk to avoid, have sex to avoid, work to avoid, um, but basically always avoid feeling our feelings. And it's instead committing to sitting right in the middle of our feelings and, and actually letting our feelings move through us and to truly metabolize them in that way. Uh, what are some resources for people that are experiencing anxiety that you think will be helpful to them? Oh, there's so many. I mean, I think my book hopefully can serve as a resource, The Anatomy of Anxiety. I think that there's incredible resources online around mindfulness meditation, so many good apps to support that. And I think that really whatever somebody is drawn to, you know, if you know that you want to do dance or movement or journaling or morning pages, part of the artist's way, but there's so many different resources and practices to make sure that you're slowing down and tuning into whatever your body is trying to communicate to you. Should people go see a psychiatrist or psychologist or should they try to help themselves or, you know, what would be like a set of general possibilities or recommendations for people to try? Yeah. So it's actually, I think more of a nuanced issue than most people realize. I think of course there's an easy thing to say, which is like, you know, get treatment, get into care. I wish that there was a perfect system to that, but there isn't. So we have problems of accessibility and affordability when it comes to mental health care. And I harbor a different issue with it, which is that I think even if you're the lucky one and you make it past the hurdles of affordability and accessibility and you get in to see a mental health professional, sometimes that means that you talk for 15 minutes and you walk out with a prescription. And I don't think that that's actually really good care. I don't think it's understanding the full breadth of your experience and what you're going through and what would help you. And so then you're just on meds for a long time, sometimes without appropriate follow-up. And it's not a great recipe for ultimately thriving and being well. So I think that part of my message is to let people know that when safe and appropriate, you can start on your own at home. There's a lot that we can do as individuals for ourselves to support our mental health. It doesn't have to be gatekeeped behind the hallowed halls of the mental health profession, even just improving the quality of our sleep, prioritizing our sleep, moving our bodies, getting some exercise, nourishing ourselves, feeling our gut a little bit, getting out into nature, getting some sunshine, 
connecting with our community. These are also determinants of our mental health. And these are things that we can often do for free for ourselves and we can feel better. Um, what types of anxiety are you seeing uh, increasing? How is the face of anxiety changing again, especially over the past two years? I'm not sure there's a change in quality. There's just a change in how many people are struggling and to what degree. I think that if anything, the one qualitative change I'm seeing is more of a kind of languishing state where people have really just totally exhausted their surge capacity. They're burnt out. Now they're just sort of running on empty at this point. So it's a very anxious and depleted state, sort of simultaneously wired and depleted. And I'm seeing a lot of that at this point in the pandemic. Okay. So the recommendation is different for people that have, you know, really been damaged by you know the pandemic or or same as just what you said before? Um, I think it's a tricky situation when you feel damaged by the pandemic. I mean, ideally what we would do is we would start to meet our fundamental human needs that we haven't been meeting. The need for community to not feel isolated for parents or anybody who just feels like they haven't had any time to themselves or any space. They need to fill their cup in those ways. They need a little bit of a break. And that for many of us is still not easily accessible, but I think that people need a release. They need something to support them. They need to be processing what they're going through, talking out loud, whether it's with a friend or a community or a support group or a therapist. And I think that in a sense, the suggestions in my book are not really like, that's very appealing to many of us. Like if I have this kind of anxiety, I should take this supplement. And it's not so much like a, a matching puzzle like that. It's really like all of these things in a very elegant way, support all of these different states of depletion and anxiety. So improving the sleep quality is going to help all forms of anxiety and all forms of burnout and depletion. Well, very good. Um, what's the best place for people to find out more about uh, your work and your suggestions? Where can they go? So I'm very active on Instagram. I'm at MD, and I have a website, ellenvora.com. And then my hope is that my book, The Anatomy of Anxiety, can really be a tool that people can lean on to help support them with their anxiety. Oh, a quick question about the book. What are, what are some of the highlights of that uh, you want to mention, you know, for, that people will get out of reading the book? So the book is really split into two sections. And the first half is very focused on the false anxiety. So it's very actionable strategies that help you identify where is your body getting out of balance and what can you do about it with a real appreciation for behavioral psychology and the fact that this is hard. So very gentle, accessible, bite-sized steps that you can take. And then the second half of the book is really understanding these deeper psycho-spiritual questions at play with anxiety. So there's a little bit of a metaphysical angle. There's a bit about connection to spirituality and purpose. And there's a lot about how helping us find the way that works for us that, to connect to that inner whisper. So whether that's meditation or working with psychedelics or you know different kinds of movement practices, but you figure out what's right for you in terms of getting still and getting quiet, hearing that true anxiety. Very good. Well, Ellen, thanks for coming on the podcast and I appreciate it. And uh, I'm going to check out your book and, and thanks for your help. Richard, thanks so much for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 
This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.